just to uh, to follow up this theme of um, containing the fires or uh, guiding, channeling the, the the fires of of the mind of the spirit. Um, particularly, uh, what brought what brought it to mind was say uh, the um, uh, reavowal of the precepts, and this is um, very much like the the uh, the purpose of of uh, a discipline that we have, like the monastic discipline, is this kind of containing and, and channeling, guiding um, the fire of our of our being towards useful ends. And this is, um, as all of you uh, uh, are probably experiencing, a, an a at once painful and liberating process. That it's uh, the two seem to be intimately associated with each other. That it's. Uh, it's, it's hard work, but it does you good. I was uh, contemplating this today, and an uh, um, and incident sprang to mind. This happened a couple of, this was a couple of years ago, and uh, at the time, uh, uh, a woman had come from, I, I think it was uh, all the way from New Zealand, uh, from the other side of the world, to Amaravati, to come and join our community there. And she'd uh, she'd been associated with a monastery in New Zealand and in Thailand, and had come to to join the, the nuns' order in England. And uh, we knew that that she was coming. We, we'd heard that she was on her way. And um, when she uh, when she arrived, um, I think Ajahn Sumato was away, and then Ajahn Sajito was the was the senior monk that day. And and so um, uh, she uh, she arrived and came up and, and uh, paid her respects and. And said hello, and someone told him, "I said, oh, this is so and so. You know, she's she's just arrived from New Zealand. She's come to 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 stay here at Amravati." And he looked at her and smiled and said, "Welcome to Heartbreak Hotel." Then <laughs> 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 she smiled. <laughs> that it's a um, there's a lot of. Uh, of uh, wrenching, yeah, heart wrenching that uh, goes on in uh, spiritual practice, and that um, and it's uh, it's difficult work to do. It's uh, it's hard work to do, and as uh, in a way, if one goes into it expecting it to be that way, realizing that's that's par for the course, then. Um, Prepared, in a way, our, our heart is ready to, uh, to, uh, as uh, Sister Sundra was saying, take on some challenges. We uh, we don't expect it to be a day at the beach. A retreat like this, um, this kind of situation where one is experiencing a, a lot of containment. Um, we are witnessing the, you know, the uh, the karma of a, a human life, or the, the whole karma of the human race. Um, our, our instinctual nature, our part of the animal world, the human world, our own family, uh, our own personal history. That uh, the whole spectrum of different influences uh, of our body, our mind, our whole world are, are brought forth and uh, presented uh, in our consciousness. We experience the. Um, the results of of, uh, of all of that, and uh, last year, uh, the um, Venerable Subato, who was uh, the monk who was travelling with me last year, he uh, we were doing a, a retreat in up in uh, southern Washington at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center, and uh, I asked him to give a talk one evening on this retreat, and uh, he gave he brought forth this highly memorable analogy, even more memorable than, memorable than Heartbreak Hotel. As Amravati was um, this, uh, those of you who were there will doubtless remember. So you, <laughs> I'm sure you can cope with hearing it again. He um, he has a very, uh, uh, say, dry sense of humour, and you can never tell when he's being dead serious or when he's being totally absurd. And uh, so anyway, he started off this this talk in an ex- with an extremely sober expression on his face. But he said uh, he said in New Zealand. Um, when they are training a sheepdog, sheepdog, what's he talking about? 
<laughs> when you are when you are training a sheepdog, and this uh, this sheepdog uh, kills a lamb through its uh, kind of over getting overexcited um, and aggressive, then what they do is they take the the dead lamb and then they tie it around the neck of the sheepdog in such a way as it can't get it off. And so then the, the dog is then left with this rotting carcass under its nose for days and days and days. And they said uh, the effect of this is that um, it's such a, uh, an unpleasant um, experience and so um, uh, sickening for the dog that uh, it'll, it never does it again. So he said, then after having explained this, and everyone was thinking, what on earth is this guy talking about? <laughs> he said, well, meditation retreats are rather like this. <laughs> it's like going around with a rotting, the rotting carcass of all of, uh, <laughs> all of the, uh, the, out, the kind of, uh, painful outcome of uh, your past actions and your personal history and uh, the human world sort of the odors wafting up from below, <laughs> day after day, each day getting slightly more rancid than the day before. <laughs> so after a while it dries out. And <laughs> and um, so I, I admired this, um, this, uh, this image. At the end of the retreat, the, retreat, uh, the, the retreatants presented him with a little woolly lamb. <laughs> which he, uh, he, uh, he, he kept with great delight. He was very proud of that. Um, but that, in a way, that's, that's what we experience. And, um, and so, um, you know, one is uh, needing to, uh, in a way, come to terms with all of the, the various different fragrances that, uh, that we uh, encounter. Because not all of them are. Not all of them are, are rancid, but uh, the ones that that uh, are, are painful uh, are the um, the hardest to bear, or the, that you know that which is the most that which is strongest, the most intense, is the most difficult to, to be at peace with, or to understand, or to, to come to terms with. So, of the the different things that we um, that we experience uh, that, that go on in our minds and that, that come up during, particularly during retreats and in our life in general, that um, you know, that are, are affect our lives very deeply. You know, I thought that uh, I would give um, some uh, attention to, to this this evening, and uh, that uh, you know the things that are, are hard to work with, difficult to understand, and uh, most particularly the, you know, the two the, the two most powerful um, forces amongst the two the two of the most powerful forces that we experience are those. Uh, of sexual desire and also aggression or violence. So I thought uh, this is uh, also the peacocks <laughs> doing their spring thing. It made me think of the, uh, the, whole, the whole mating game and competition and aggression. And, so, and also, you know, being Friday, Friday night, sex and violence is <laughs> standard fare for a Friday evening entertainment. So, uh, since we haven't got any movies, <laughs> but uh, uh, seriously, you know, this is—it's uh, often the kind of forbidden subject um, that you know we sort of nice, polite people don't talk about these kind of things. But yet, they—they they affect our life very deeply um, and uh, con and hold a con continuous influence over the way that we live and the way we experience. And particularly when you're entering upon a meditation practice. You know, one has to know what to do with these kind of energies. That if you don't uh, understand it or, or know how to, to work with it, um, or you, you you look at it in in um, kind of just habitual ways, then uh, the the mind is still hemmed in or imprisoned by those same those same uh, urges. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I was. Um, uh, uh, talking about this somewhat in, during the winter retreat at Amravati, I was I was leading the retreat this year, and, and I was reminded. Uh, uh, it came to mind that um, in Greek mythology, there's a, an interesting thing that uh, the the, uh, the god of war and the goddess of love were actually partners or lovers. That uh, Aphrodite and um, and Ares, 
were, were lovers. That, and that, uh, I thought, this is an interesting thing, because the, the, these, uh, these kind of myths are always portraying uh, aspects of our own human world in a very direct way. And um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the twist to it was that um, Aphrodite's husband was, was Hephaestus, who was the, the, the eldest son, the first son of Zeus uh, and Hera, but he was, he was lame. When he was born, he was crippled. And Zeus was so disgusted with having a crippled son that he took him in one hand and hurled him down from Olympus, down under the sea, uh, where Hephaestus then grew up, somehow or other. And he became a smith, like a, he had a forge. And uh, he used to sort of make um, beautiful um, armory and, and beautiful metal objects and things. But he was definitely, he was ugly and he was, def and he was crippled and a kind of uh, an outcast. And so for, uh, but they thought, well, after a, a few centuries or however long these things go on, mm -hmm. Zeus um, had pity on him, thought, well, we suppose you ought to marry the boy off. You know, he's, <laughs> he's not what I would have chosen. So anyway, they, he cho they chose to marry him to Aphrodite, who wasn't terribly excited about the, the prospect, because not only was he, he um, not very handsome and, and lame, but he was also incredibly boring. He was like a very uh, dutiful and utterly boring personality, you know. Um, and she was kind of a energetic, lively being. And so anyway, but they were they were married together. And then, this, as the story goes, um, she and, and Ares met up with each other, and there was instant electricity uh, between the two of them. And so they started having this uh, affair together. And then Hephaestus found out about this. And he was outraged and thought, okay, well, you know, this is, this is, this is uh, totally um, out of order and I'm going to have my revenge. So being a, a, a smith and a great technician, he built this, this trap, this kind of network of, of, of wires around the, the, the bed in his, in his house. And so then he went away on a trip and said, okay, bye-bye, dear. See, see you in a few weeks. And she says, bye-bye, dear. <laughs> and then as soon as he's gone, and of course, Ares moves in. And uh, so then Hephaestus comes back, and, and he, and he um, waits until they're um, uh, engaged with each other, and then he, he kind of slips the trap. He springs the trap, and then this network of wires kind of flips down and, and pins both uh, Ares and, and Aphrodite together on this bed. So then you know, Hephaestus then summons down all the gods from Olympus and says, look, you know, this, is, this is totally wrong. These people must be punished. I must have my revenge. And was being all kind of indignant because it was his, um, you know, according to law and also all sense of marital propriety, this shouldn't happen. This is wrong, and these people should be punished. But uh, the result was that, um, in fact, the other gods in Olympus said, "Oh, come on! I mean, <laughs> be fair. You know that, uh, you know, all's fair in love and war. I mean, you know." She is Aphrodite, you know, that, and that, um, you know, anyone, any of the, you know, all the gods of Olympus, you know, have, uh, have <laughs> totally drawn to her. And so, I mean, you, what do you expect? You know, it's, uh, it's just, you're just being narrow-minded. Don't worry about it. And he couldn't get any kind of sympathy from any of the other gods. And it was, uh, and he was just sort of left out in the cold. Because, uh, and the, 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 the reason why I bring this up or talk about it is because, that um, even in that sort of form, the, 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 the role of, of passion is seen as that which even overrides uh, kind of ordinary social law or social order. But it was like within that mythology, it was understandable and kind of acceptable by the society that, that um, everyone understood that you know, if there's, if there's uh, <laughs> sufficient passion there, that... that uh, in a way, governs the situation more than any kind of moral law or agreement or social social order. That it's a, a kind of recognised. Um, um, it's it's potency and it and it's uh, supremacy in the human mind. It's a uh, agreed upon. You know that all's fair in love and war. Now the um, when you when one contemplating both kind of aggression, violence, and, and sexuality, then it's good to, to in a way, recognize that this isn't just a, like a, 
things that we as individuals experience. Uh, these are uh, extremely basic instincts that uh, exist within us, like from, uh, from the, most ba the most sort of uh, pro small protozoan animals, the most kind of tiny creatures. They, uh, they have uh, instincts of uh, feeding, of protecting themselves, of uh, when, they, when they're looking around at the world around them, you know, the, even the most simple creatures will be examining the world to see, you know, can I eat it? You know, is this something I can eat? Is this something that's going to eat me? You know, or is this, uh, or is this something that I can mate with? It's uh, even on the most basic level, you know, these sort of instincts of, of the tiniest creatures uh, hunting for, for food or protecting themselves or, or looking to, to procreate. And that this, uh, uh, you know, our heritage from the animal world is played out through, uh, through our minds. And, you know, we, we, in a way, we kind of dress it up with more uh, elaborate, um, uh, say, structures or ideas or principles, but the driving force is behind it, about kind of protecting ourselves or, or aggressing against others or, or, um, or attraction, is coming from a, an almost cellular level of our bodies. It's, uh, it's like a, a basic uh, energy uh, within us is, is being uh, uh, awakened. Um, and so one should look at and respect that uh, this, uh, these forces that we, that we experience that affect us are coming from very, very deep levels within us. It's, this is not superficial. This is kind of basic um, uh, survival uh, instincts of, of any, any sentient creature. Now there's a um, there's a a passage in one of the in one of the Chinese sutras called the Sutra of Forty Two Sections that says um, I remember this is a translation from from this community here that uh, one of the the books that we got from them in the early eighties and I was just flipping through this one day and I came across this chapter where it says um, uh, sexual desire is the most powerful force in the universe. If there were two forces as powerful as this, there would be no hope for escape from samsara for anyone. <laughs> I thought, whoa. <laughs> but, uh, this is, uh, uh, in a way, one, one is, is uh, say, uh, acknowledging or appreciating the, the power that one is dealing with, of the, 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 uh, the instinctual strength of, the, of, of these forces, is, is uh, to be... Uh, not to be um, disregarded, mm -hmm. that one, is, has, one needs to take into account the, um, uh, the ability of, uh, of uh, the, this, uh, these forces to, to override everything else within us. You know, the mo uh, morality or, or ra uh, rationality or, or uh, anything else that it can you know, that, that urge to, to protect yourself or to, or to attraction towards another is capable of, of kind of overleaping everything else that, that, uh, that we experience, everything else that, that um, say, influences us. Uh, when you're taking on, um, uh, say, a spiritual training, a meditative life, and, um, you know, going into, a, say, going into a monastery or going on a retreat like this, then uh, you know this is something that you're not often very well equipped with to, for for dealing with the um, the the power of uh, of sexual desire or, or um, uh, dealing with uh, aggression. And particularly, um, I remember um, it was a, it was an interesting sequence of things happened with myself that uh, when I went in I went into the monastery um, kind of unexpectedly at the age of 21. And um, I, I'd been very uh, drawn towards spirituality, but had never imagined that I was going to be a, a monk. I'm not, I mean, I kind of, it crossed my mind, but I never, never took the thought seriously. And um, certainly I had, didn't have any plans to be celibate for the rest of my life at all. And then when I, I found myself in the monastery and, and became very inspired with the monastic life, then I found that um, in the, the first year, the, as soon as you know, I, I joined the monastery, then uh, all uh, all interest in any kind of sexual activity just like dropped away completely. It was like vanished, evaporated. 
And I remember thinking, well, that was easy. <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be a major struggle. And it just, it just uh, disappeared. But, oh, oh well, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, one less thing I have to worry about. And then, uh, but then what happened was that as I approached a sort of uh, reaching monk uh, ordination, and the sort of the, 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 the vows or the precepts that you take kind of get stronger and the rules that you have get fiercer, then uh, I began to um, become more like, I could feel this sense of fear arising of, of you know, any kind of, you know, oh dear, what happens if, if um, any kind of sexual desire does arise? You know, all these, these rules that you, you have to keep as a monk are incredibly strict, incredibly um, uh, tight. Uh, rule that we have to, to live by, that you know, no kind of sexual activity is allowed whatsoever with, uh, with uh, yourself or with anybody else. And so that as, uh, even though there, uh, I could feel within myself there wasn't really anything there, you could feel this sense of fear mounting as I was a novice. And then when, when my uh, bhikkhu ordination came, when my ordination as a monk came, then I could feel this sense of like this, this uh, sort of weight descending of like, oh dear, now I'm really, really in for it. Because uh, in a way what happens in, in Thailand in particular is that, uh, that uh, monks become, you know, sort of, you're almost encouraged to become frightened of women. It's like, you're, it's almost as if women are treated as if they're radioactive. Or <laughs> that something, you know, that you, you have to kind of keep this, this, this barrier and that, um, you know, because you, you're, you're encouraging a quality of restraint and keeping a distance, but it, it becomes a bit manic. And, um, and uh, one is sort of always kind of edging away or leaning away, or, or one sort of given to sort of drifts into a sense of fear of any kind of, of contact. You know, the, the rules are very strict against it, but uh, the rules are merely a kind of formalization of what is, um, you know, in a way, a natural disposition. That you know you're you're not intending to engage in, in a, with a people on a, on a sexual level. You're you're engaging as, as brothers and sisters to the rest of humanity, and so that uh, that's just really formalized in the rule that we have. Um, but it, it goes further than that. It becomes a kind of uh, fear, you know, a, a fearfulness. And I remember very clearly um, when I when I took the ordination as a monk. I I remember like. The feeling of the of the rules sort of coming down on me, and the the sense of, of anxiety about about sexuality sort of amplifying, and so something in me said, "Remember this. Notice how the law and and the fear are kind of associated with each other. You know, if something's forbidden, then you become uh, becoming uh, you know afraid of of that, and." Um, and so you began to, to realize that what happens is that the, mostly the way that we, uh, we deal with um, things that are uncomfortable to us, uh, aggression or, or, or sexual desire, um, is that we either follow them, we, we are, the mind tends to go either in indulgence or in suppression. And what can easily happen within a, an environment like this in a meditation retreat or if you're trying to develop your, your spiritual life, your meditative life, is that, uh, is that you, you, kind of, you, you shuttle between the two you kind of lurch from one to the other, of kind of suppression, of kind of hold down the the, uh, the energy, or just giving vent to it and following it. And that uh, these are exactly the two extremes that the Buddha uh, described are the you know the to be avoided. That these are the causes of of suffering in our life. But it's very difficult if you, if you are in a way uh, frightened or you're not uh, you're not aware of what you're dealing with to be kind of blown around by that. If you don't really understand what the energy is, then you, you, you tend to get blown around from one extreme to the other and never really you know, understand it or, or, or direct it in a, in a wise way. So I, I began to see that, um, that, uh, that there was this, uh, um, you know, that, uh, and after I, after I ordained as a, as a monk, then, you know, the, the kind of, the blank period of, of, uh, of those feelings disappearing and have completed itself, and then you know, the, the, uh, those uh, feelings started arising again. And then, but yeah, I could something in me knew that it was being fed by the, the sense of fear of, of like not wanting it and and pushing it away and fearing it, and that that was actually empowering the whole process. So that um, 
and I could see this happened a lot around the, the people uh, in the monastery. And, uh, and so that uh, the, um, one was in a way looking for kind of guidance or, or examples. There was an interesting uh, story that I remember Ajahn Sumedho told quite, told quite often about um, Ajahn Chah when he came to England the first time, and, and he was one who never rushed anywhere. And when they were getting off the plane in London, in London airport, they had to get onto a, like an airport bus on the tarmac. And of course, he just he waited till everyone else got off the plane, and he was last out of the plane and sauntered across the tarmac. And, and when they got to the bus, by some curious chance, you know, all the people filling the doorway were women. Mm-hmm. Every single one, you see. And, and so Ajahn Sumedho immediately gets very anxious, like, oh dear, you know, this shouldn't be, um, I have to get another bus. or. <laughs> Because you know, by the the, the sort of the, the rule and the custom in Thailand, then you know, uh, uh, you know, a monk would never uh, come in physical contact with a woman. And Ajahn Chah kind of looked and thought, and you could see, hmm. Well, either we make a big fuss, or I just we just get on. And so he kind of looked. He looked at the bus and then looked at Ajahn Sumedho and gave him a big grin and just kind of walked up the steps and kind of <laughs> <laughs> worked his way into the bus and just stood there. You know, <laughs> not make, no, this is not a problem. Or when uh, uh, when um, monks would go into hospital, sometimes some of them make a big fuss about demanding to have uh, male nurses looking after them. And Ajahn Chah, even though he was incredibly scrupulous about the rules, he'd say, "Don't make a fuss. A monk is someone who doesn't uh, cause problems. You don't don't be a headache for all the nurses. Just kind of be easy to look after." So one could see that the right attitude was somehow not making a a big deal out of it. And I knew also that, that uh, Ajahn Chah, in his, in his youth, as a young monk, he had, uh, had uh, voluminous lust uh, arising in his mind. He was, no, he was famous for his, uh, <laughs> for his, uh, his lustfulness. Um, but it, but his, uh, what he always said was that that energy that arises, and he was also very angry, he was a very violent, angry person, had a tremendous amount of aversion in him. But he would say, this en- the same energy uh, for, that is there for, for lust or for, for anger is exactly the same energy that for enlightenment. He says, it's the same energy. It's just a matter of what you do with it. You know, if you, if you fear it, if you hate it, if you become fascinated with it, you, you, you miss the point. The whole um, training is to, is to transform that energy, to redirect it, not to, not to fear it or suppress it or to, or to follow it blindly but to, to understand it. So that when one takes on a, a, like a, uh, a training like this, being on a retreat and, and living in a restrained way, kind of not uh, venting your anger, not kind of speaking out against people, not engaging in, in any kind of sexual uh, way, then this, this kind of restraint or formality is, is there as a, as a tool to help us kind of um, work with uh, instinctual energies that we have to, to bring about this kind of transmutation so that we are, are not just driven around or pulled around by you know, attraction and aversion, but we, we begin to, to recognize that energy for what it is and to, to transform it, to, to not just let it be like wildfire, but to, to like contain the, the fire, direct it, and, and tran- transform it. And, we, and also to look at the, uh, the, the form that we adopt. As, uh, as I was saying, it's in a way, it's a formalization of an attitude of mind. You know, like, uh, like I was saying about um, the word brahmacharya for celibacy the other day. Like, you know, that um, rather than thinking of, of um, abstinence from sexual activity as somehow... A, a diminution or a, or a, a doing without something, you know, to, to think of it in terms of, of brahmacharya, which means um, uh, walking with the gods, like divine conduct or divine, divine a divine mode of being, that um, you're you're simply formalizing your recognition of that in us, which is say divine or transcendent of of um, Relating with other beings in in that way of of, uh, of sexuality or or, or of uh, aggression. I thought also when I, I, was, I was contemplating this, I had a, a little um, quotation from uh, this is from a Benedictine monk called uh, Brother David 
Steindl Rast, who many of you probably have heard of. And this is from an interview that he gave to a, um, in, a, in a New Age magazine. I, I, we were with him a little while ago down at Esalen. He's become a monk in, e- monk in residence at, at Esalen. In fact, I, I was invited to be one too. At, uh, <laughs> anyway, more of that later. So, and uh, this is, uh, he, was, he was asked a question about how, the, how um, uh, celibacy and uh, the, mo- the monastic life and, and uh, sexuality fit together. And this was his, his response. And I was so impressed by it that I, I've uh, copied it out and have uh, used it frequently. He says, I approach celibacy from a very practical point of view. I see sexuality as the bodily expression of our relatedness to others. It's present in every relationship, even the most casual, and we do well to make sure that that expression is genuine. Now, if monastics totally belong to everyone they meet, and that's their calling, how can they genuinely express this in the realm of sexuality? Total promiscuity might be one way, but that's not very practical. The most realistic form is that of relating to everyone as brother or sister, celibacy. The restrictions on our sexuality are not imposed on celibates because there is something wrong with sexuality, but only because if you have set yourself certain goals in life, you have to fit the use of your sexuality to those goals. And the goal monastics have set themselves, mindfulness, full belonging to all, full availability to all, this goal puts very severe limits on the use of sexuality. And the real glory of celibacy not, comes not from having freed yourself from something that is inglorious. On the contrary, you let go of it with the greatest regret. The glory comes from having so single-mindedly set yourself on something that you're holding up, that quest for total mindfulness and universal belonging, that you're even willing to deprive yourself, and others possibly, of something so glorious as sexuality. Uh, asceticism means training. It comes from the athletic vocabulary. And that is the goal, training in the spiritual life. We know that athletes do many of the things that ascetics in a religious, con- in a religious context do. They have a certain diet, they fast, they abstain from liquor and drugs and so forth. And they often have to have sexual restrictions too. So there are all sorts of restrictions that they have to undergo. You take upon yourself a certain discipline. But that's only the negative aspect of something very positive that you're radically committed to something for a higher goal and you want to win the prize. And so, if you want to win the prize, this is the way you do it. So that, that's, uh, I was really touched by how uh, you know, very practical and, um, and straightforward an approach that is, that it's simply seeing that um, you know, one can choose to, to, uh, to follow that energy and, and uh, go along with it in its own terms, or you can choose to experience it and look upon it in a different way. So what we're doing with meditation is like becoming acquainted with, uh, say, uh, the, 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 the strength or the, the presence of, uh, say, a sexual desire, and, and beginning to, to recognize just how it feels, what it is, just as an energy within the body, just like and as I was saying, the, the energy uh, of sexuality is the same as the energy of, of aggression, it's the same as the energy of, of affection, of intelligence, of intellection, of enlightenment. It's the same, it's like electricity, it's the same stuff. It just uh, is used for different devices. You know, you feed it into a toaster and it cooks toast. You feed it into a, <laughs> a, a hoover and it, and it <laughs> vacuums the carpet. You know, you, you put it into a... A washing machine, it washes your clothes, you know, it's just the same energy, you can, but you can use it for all, diff- all different things. And so one needs to really look at it in that very kind of down-home way. And, uh, and also, as I was saying, that to, to, to recognize its power, but not to be overawed by it. I was saying uh, about Ajahn Chah, he, was, um, he had uh, a tremendous, I mean, I think the, the source of his wisdom was because he was such an energetic being, and early on in his monastic life, it came out a lot as, as anger and violence and sexual desire. And he was uh, also a really you know, tough monk, and he would take on these uh, absurd ascetic practices. And so one time he, he decided, okay, now I'm definitely going to get a handle on my lustfulness. This, is, this has gone on too long. I'm, I'm going to work on this without, uh, 
without any mucking about. And so he decided to, um, for, for three months, he said, because he, he would always get so confused and carried away when, when he ever, whenever he saw uh, 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 not only an attractive woman, but any woman, his mind would just go, <laughs> you know, flying off. He said, okay, for three months I'm not going to even look at a woman. My eyes are on the ground. I see nothing. And so he, um, and so the, um, he was talking about this, and the other monk saying, "Wow, that's you know, could you really manage to do it?" And he said, "Yeah, I did it. It was, it was really hard to do, but for three months I did not, I did not see, I did not even look at, at a woman, let alone make eye contact." And then, uh, and they said, "Well, what was the result of it?" And he said, "Well, um, uh, I realized afterwards that I was doing this from a somewhat." Um, a suppressive attitude, and what happened was that after three months, I, I was, you know, my mind was quite cool. You know, obviously at that sort of um, women had been kind of written out of my universe at that time, and so that you know, um, I was feeling quite pleased with myself. My meditation was very was very good. So I thought, okay, well, I will I will now look. I'll deliberately look uh, look at a woman and see what the effect is. And so the, kind of the monks kind of leant forward and said, well, what happened? He said. It was like being hit by lightning. <laughs> I was t totally helpless for days. <laughs> so he said, I realized that was not the way. <laughs> so that, you know, in the, in the meditation, what one is doing is like you having to, in a way, recognize the strength of that feeling and how instinctual it is, because it, it happens before thought. It's like, the, like I was saying about, like a little protozoan will we'll hunt for, for food or for enemies or for partners. And so we're very much the same. It ha it's before thought. The, the, you, know, you hear a sound and you think, you know, and the, the, the mind kind of goes towards, well, maybe it's, it's a, an enemy or maybe it's a, 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 a partner coming in the room or the, the, you know, the eye will, will sort of be scanning for, for possibilities of, of threat or, or attraction. And then, uh, you know, then the thought comes <coughs> in after. So that, uh, in a way, to, to recognize that, uh, the, uh, the strength of, of that feeling and to, to, in a way, feel it and not add anything onto it. Just to be able to, to recognize that uh, the mind kind of lurching off in a, in a direction, to, to, you know, turning towards something or, or reaching for something. And recognizing that, that, that quality of, of compulsion, the mind being compelled, kind of pulled towards something or... or, or or, um, or pulling away in fear. They're just to, to recognize that as a simple feeling, like as a, as a sort of physiological reaction. And that, um, and then, uh, in a way, digesting that feeling. So that it's a, um, uh, in, if, if one can see it reasonably clearly or quickly, then w one recognizes it in a way saying, well, yes, there's this feeling, but, but whose is it? Who does it belong to? You know, or just recognizing it just as a feeling in itself. And that's, in a way, that works if, if you sort of catch it early on. Um, but if, uh, as it usually is the case, you know, the mind is sort of, is kind of well stuck into the process before you even kind of realize where you are, um, and that, you know, that, uh, that energy has already arisen within you, then it's a, uh, one, one of the most useful things to use is just to, to um, draw that, the energy up through the body because it's like, uh, you know, as the, the, the body gets energized in that way, you can actually, you can, it, as I was saying, it is just one kind of energy that we have, like life energy, and it's a matter of just like drawing it up through your body. Like you can kind of pull in a, the... The, uh, the muscles at the base of the spine kind of straighten up the body and you can actually feel the energy kind of rising up through the, through the, the solar plexus, through the heart, through the throat, and up into the, the, uh, the energy centers in the, in, the, in the head. You can actually feel the, the, the energy coming up through the body and, then, and that energy then losing its, its, say, its sexual characteristic and transforming into, into other, uh, in other ways as it rises up and actually um, uh, that kind of transmutation, you can use that energy that is, that is aroused in that way for really brightening the mind. That it actually, you know, if, the, if the body is energized um, in that way, you that the effect of it as you bring it up through the body is to really illuminate and energize the consciousness, energize the mind. That's actually the basis of a lot of, 
of uh, tantra, tantric yoga, is that deliberately arousing that energy and then and then bringing it up through the body to illuminate the mind. Well, and of course, in the Theravadan tradition, we don't kind of <laughs> you basically don't you don't invite trouble. <laughs> but if trouble arises, you make good use of it. <laughs> That's the the basis one works on. Um, so that uh, you're you're actually and you can you can see this directly for yourself that it's uh, it will what was at one mo moment seen as something that's that is a sort of a, a difficulty or a, or something that is is fascinating um, to you can actually draw the energy out through the body and then see that it, it it's just you can witness it very clearly you're kind of illuminating brightening the mind and then um, that. Uh, uh, the brightness of mind then gives you a, a very powerful tool for for seeing clearly, for insight, for for um, uh, a kind of clear development of, of wisdom, of, of of true peacefulness. Because it's very it's very important to recognize that you know when you're you say you're letting go of uh, of, uh, of sexual desire in this way, that uh, something in us fears that. I mean, it's like a a state of grief. Uh, or grieving, you know, if, if that, uh, I mean, people spend fortunes trying to sustain <laughs> the thousands and thousands of uh, millions of, of dollars are spent by people deliberately trying to keep it alive. <laughs> you know, they're afraid it's going to fade out when they get old um, and spending fortunes trying to keep it going. And then, the, and the, you know, these, <laughs> these weird meditators are trying to, <laughs> these monastics are doing their best, spending uh, hours and hours on their zafus trying to. <laughs> Trying to do the opposite. <laughs> the um, there's a you know there can be a sense of, of like uh, of, of grief or loss or somehow that one is uh, kind of diminished or there's something missing. But again, I feel that that comes a lot from just our conditioning, the way that we think about mm. it. And if the if one sees clearly that what's actually happening as as that energy is trans transmuted from the at the lower chakras to, to the lower energy centers up to the, the higher centers of the heart or of the, 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 uh, the uh, centers in the, in the head, that this actually um, becomes, a, uh, there's nothing lost, but it, be, it, it, uh, it empowers the brahmacharya, our, our divine life, our, it empowers our realization of, of divinity, if you like. Because uh, nibbana, when we talk about nibbana, the realization of nibbana, it, it can come across as like a very bland, you know, the ultimate blandness. You know, like, and they use it similes like the blowing out of a flame. But actually, nibbana uh, is a is a hyper energetic state. It's a it's a, a state of total energy. It's where the the energy of the body and the mind have have um, are, are completely alive and awakened and empowered rather than kind of transmuted or diverted and uh, this is something that, is, that one has to, to recognize oneself I mean it can seem as though that, um, that from the descriptions you get in some of the in some of the, um, the teachings that this is a, a, a kind of null a null state uh, you know state of of, um, of nothingness but uh, you know the experience of it is is actually tremendously energized, bright, awake, alive. And when uh, dealing with um, on the other on the other side of this, dealing with violence, dealing with our own aggression, our own negativity, you know this is uh, again is is like a it's part of the, the body's energy system. It's like the uh, it's uh, our own our own will, uh, like self-based will gone berserk is what turns into anger and violence and aggression. It's like um, using our power as a human being to assert, uh, to assert our, our, our will for our own purpose, our own, our own protection, our own ends. But in the same way, it's the same energy. It's just going out in, in, uh, into uh, 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 an aggressive, destructive mode rather than an acquisitive, um, uh, attracted attractive mode. And so when, uh, when you're meditating on this, one uses it in exactly the same way. You can, in the same way, when you find, an when anger arises, you find it, 
usually sort of down in the solar plexus, you feel this kind of uh, uh, heat and energy uh, down there. And in the same way, you can draw that energy up through the body <laughs> the, the, to take your attention off either, you know, either the thing that you're fascinated and attracted by or the thing that you're angry about and to, to bring it into to the body. Notice how the body is reacting and then draw the energy up in the same way, just kind of pulling in at the base of the spine, straightening the body and just drawing the energy up. Not in a, not in a, a sort of aggressive way, but just like creating the conditions whereby the energy is going to naturally rise, which is its, it is its, its disposition to do. So you're in the same way transmuting it. Because it's, it's, uh, it's very easy to get into uh, aggressive and, and um, destructive modes of, of mind. In, in meditation, you know, we, that's why we talk so much about loving-kindness. It's like um, someone asked the Dalai Lama once, you know, why does religion exist in the world? And he said, because of anger. Because we get angry, we need religion. <laughs> and that's why we talk about like, loving-kindness so much, is because we're so given towards, if something is in our way, if there's something that we don't like, if there's something that, that causes us pain, you know, kill it get rid of it, wipe it out, push it away, dispense with it. And that's our, almost like our favoured mode of dealing with what is, is obstructive or difficult for us. And so in order to, to understand that, you know, one has to meditate on that very feeling. And when you're, you say, you're, you know, like the people, people who are in, inclined to come on a meditation retreat, we are not like gun-toting, uh, malevolent people. I mean, generally, the, those who are attracted to do Long, you know, long meditation retreats are pretty sweet and gentle characters. I wouldn't say I'm presuming too much. <laughs> but we do we still have a lot of violence in us, and it, it can come out in, in, in many ways in our lives. Just the, it can be towards ourselves, being, being self-critical, you know, insatiably self-critical, being critical of others, always finding fault with other people, kind of griping and complaining and, and criticizing. And even though you know, we might feel like I'm dedicated to non-violence, you know, and you belong to all the right societies and give money to all the right charities, <laughs> at the very same time you can still be enacting all kinds of violent and, and uh, aggressive attitudes in, in subtle ways through your speech, through the way that, that you relate with other people, you know, the opinions that you hold about, about yourself and about others. <coughs> so one has to get to know that, that same violent uh, response. At, uh, within oneself, you know, no matter how subtle it might be, or, or how reasonable, like talking about righteous indignation, that's the worst, uh, one of the most uh, delicious, uh, addictive uh, concoctions available to us. Righteous indignation, when you know that you're right, you don't, you don't think that you're right, you know, <laughs> and it's your duty to set th this guy straight, that, uh, it's, uh, there's no way around it, you know, you've, you've got to let him have it. And that um, if we act in that way, just to see what the result is, so that to, to be able to, to witness that, that kind of uh, aggressive, destructive tendency in us, and that you're feeling it in the body. There's a lovely verse that um, Master Hua wrote, there's actually this, this, this the first um, entry in my, my little book of, of uh, things to be remembered which goes, truly recognize your own faults. Do not criticize the faults of others. Another's faults are just your own. Being one with everyone is called the great compassion. And that, and that like, truly recognize your own faults. That doesn't mean you know, beat yourself over the head for them, but just recognize what faults there are. And and to recognize that a lot of the faults that we see in other people are our own, uh, our own problems, our own faults, projected out onto others. You know, when I'm angry at myself, if, if I hate myself, then suddenly I start hating all the people around me. If I have kindness and benevolence towards myself, then suddenly I'm living in a, <laughs> in a very different, <laughs> living in a world of, of kindly people. So we tend to project out onto others our own, our own inward attitudes, and so. Uh, oftentimes when we, we, get, we get angry or we, we, we vent our spleen about, about issues in the society or about other people, it's our own. Often it's just a, a sense of anger and violence that's unresolved within us. It's just looking for a place to live. And then so, some poor soul gets it in the neck 
but it's in a lot of it can just be what we're hanging on to, what was unresolved, un unseen in ourselves, and so that just to recognize that as it occurs within us, whatever causes it, to to feel it coming into being, that sense of rage and destructiveness. And some people feel this very consciously, others others it's it's very vague. You think, well, I'm a nice person. Yeah, I don't I don't think violent thoughts. I like people. Or maybe you're a fear type and you're just sort of, you're, you're so terrified of, of anyone, you couldn't even think of being aggressive towards them. But, uh, you know, we have different dispositions as different people. I remember uh, I was sitting in on a conversation once between them, one of the, the senior monks and one of the nuns, and she was a very much a fear type. You know, it's just absolutely, um, always being terribly careful not to offend or upset anyone, and always being very kind of sweet and kind. And he was much more of a sort of assertive, aggressive type. And um, he was talking about feelings of, uh, of um, negativity and aggression. And she said, oh, I, don't, I never really feel that, Ajahn. He said, what, never? No, no. He said, usually I'm just so worried about what, you know, if people are all right and if worried about what people think of me that it never even occurs to me to feel sort of aggressive or, or negative towards them. He said, well, you never want to get hold of someone and just kind of throw them through a window and watch the glass kind of <laughs> <laughs> scattering around them and see them kind of arcing through the air. As <laughs> and she was looking at him, totally aghast. And, and it was like he was talking about it as if this happened every day <laughs> to him. <laughs> he was frequently mentally throwing people through windows. <laughs> and the, the possibility had never even crossed her mind. Just as, and he, he was just as amazed that you know, a person could go through a day without an aggressive thought, let alone a lifetime. So one has to recognize your own dispositions. But to, what I, I'm talking about is just like, in a way, downscaling what we make out of these, these urges, these kind of pa passions within our mind, just to, to, to recognize what they are. Just like basic, simple, biochemical, um, reactions, and that if we don't, if we refuse to complicate them with our own kind of personal history, or our own kind of anguishing about them, and just look at it, feel it for what it is, then we have a chance to 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 use that and to redirect that energy. Because it's not that there's anything wrong with being assertive, or, or with like, like as Brother David said, a lot of anything kind of wrong inherently with, with sexuality. Obviously, you know, this is is a required part of the. The, um, the, uh, the human and animal world. But it's just, uh, it's because it, these are so powerful that uh, we get so easily confused by them and, and disoriented and, and uh, blinded. Master, um, Master Hua, the, the abbot here, also had a very, uh, uh, very memorable analogy. Um, someone asked him about, um, about, uh, about sexual desire and he said, he said, sexual, uh, you know, how to, to handle it. And he said, well, sexual desire is a very, um, it's a very difficult thing. He said, it's, it's rather like, uh, he said, it's rather like a porcupine going down a drain pipe. <laughs> like a, going into a, like a, a drain, like a water, like a water drain. He says, it's rather like a porcupine going into a, a drain pipe. You know, it's very easy to go in. It's very easy to, to kind of get absorbed into it, but it's very difficult to get out again. <laughs> it's like the mind goes very easily into, uh, into fascination with sexuality. It kind of, like, uh, like it's very easy for the porcupine to go in one direction, but if it tries to reverse out, you know, all the quills are pointing in the wrong direction. <laughs> I thought this is an, that's a, an interesting way of, of putting it, that it's just uh, the mind kind of is pulled towards that or is interested very easily. But, but, but letting go and, and, uh, and withdrawing the uh, attention. It's like the porcupine trying to, to reverse. You, know, the, the, you can do it, <laughs> but it's, it's easier not to have, have got carried away and, and uh, absorbed and, um, and have, uh, uh, washed, uh, washed away in the process in the first place. So it's you know, the whole, the, the whole uh, art of of dealing uh, with these um, aspects of our world is is a way like catching it early and then just 
and then uh, when that or when those energies are aroused to to take the trouble to be not not to be intimidated or get or to create neurotic, neurotic problems around it but just to to take it as a basic uh, physical function and to to develop the the transformation of it because then this will lead to to the enlightenment of the mind you can use that very same energy for the awakening the enlightenment of the mind that's our power source you know, in a, in a, in, in a way, these are, these are great friends. This is like, I mean, the great fire in our world is, is the sun. The sun is like a, a great friend. You know, it's like the fire. We live with fire. We, are, we need energy uh, to do anything. And so that one can, one can use this energy in a very fruitful way. There's also um, something that I discovered a little while ago. I brought this up a few times on this trip. Um, that um, it was, it was. Uh, I discovered that the um, the word, the, the way that the Buddha used symbolism of, of fire to to talk about the mind um, was very particular. Because oftentimes, like nibbana, nirvana is seen as like the going out of a flame, or the the extinguishing of a it's like a, a flame being blown out by the wind. And um, and then talking about like um, putting out the fire of the passions, and that it can seem like you're opting for deadness, or that it's talking about a dead state, but uh, that wasn't the the understanding of the nature of fire at all. That uh, and what we're doing with this process is um, you're using this kind of um, the energy of of our being, which is sort of flowing out like uh, or um, that is uh, burning like wildfire or burning in, a, in an uncontrolled way, and you're channeling it. You're redirecting that energy you're in a way, um, uh, uh, using that, that, uh, that energy. And that um, what you're in a way doing is, is like letting that energy go back to its original source. Like the, the, um, that uh, arises out of uh, the original mind arises out of the, 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 the unconditioned mind, the basis of our own being, the primordial mind. It arises out of that, like everything else. All conditions in nature arise out of that uh, original quality, that original mind. And then they, they flare forth, and then they, they disappear. They fade out. They go back to that. And um, I've... Uh, in this respect, I'll read you another little quotation from. This is a, on a, a little book that's about to be produced on on the imagery of fire in the in the Pali Suttas. And it says, "The image of an extinguished fire carried no connotations of annihilation for the early Buddhists. Rather, the aspects of fire which to them had significance for the mind-fire analogy are these: fire, when it is burning." is in a state of agitation, dependence, a- attachment, and entrapment, both clinging and being stuck to its sustenance. Extinguished, it becomes calm, independent, indeterminate, and unattached. It lets go of its sustenance and is released. It returns to its primordial nature. So it's like the uh, fire, when it goes out, is not seen as something dying, but it's like um, the energy that is flaring forth as flames is, is withdrawn to its original, omnipresent, primordial state. And this is exactly what one can, ex- can witness in the mind, is that instead of the mind flaring forth in, in uh, desire or, or anger, you know, instead of burning like that, then when we let go of that, and we um, we retain that energy and and uh, use it to uh, awaken the mind. Then the uh, rather than the mind kind of going totally dead, actually what you find is that the mind is then awakened to its uh, primordial uh, illumined state of peacefulness, brightness, what we call the pabasara jitta or the, the, the radiant mind. And so that it's, uh, um, when we talk about Nibbana or the fires going out, it's not a state of loss or death, but a state of, of uh, undiluted living, uh, a state of, of true clarity, brightness.
a state, it's the state of uh, beatitude, or it's the state of grace itself. That's what these words mean, of the mind in that uh, transcendent, illumined, peaceful, energized state. So I'll offer that for you to consider for the evening. Should be enough to chew on for tonight. <laughs>